This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 15. Episode 39. This is Writing Excuses. Translation with guest Alex Schwartzman. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Dan. And I'm Laddie. And we have our special guest here today, Alex Schwartzman. Alex, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Hi, uh, I'm a writer, editor, and translator. Uh, I've had uh, over 100 short stories published all over the place, uh, places like Analog and Strange Horizons and Fireside um, and many other markets. Uh, I've edited uh, over a dozen anthologies, primarily the Unidentified Funny Objects Anthology Series, which is an annual anthology of humorous science fiction and fantasy. And as of about five or six years ago, because I felt like I didn't have enough on my plate, I decided to share really, really cool Russian science fiction stories with fellow American fans. And so my journey into the translation began. So now I've had translations published in uh, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Apex, Samovar, and many other places. And I've done a number of uh, long, uh, longer projects as well. So I've been, um, I've been spending more and more time in translation lately. Cool. Awesome. Excellent. Well, I am very excited to have uh, both Alex and Lottie on this one because they have both done a lot of translation work. And we got actually um, a lot of questions from our listeners about translation, both from the side of the translator, how does it work? And from the side of the author, you know, how do, how do you get your stuff translated and how does that work? Let's start from the translator. Um, can Talk to us a little bit about the ins and outs of translating somebody else's work into a different language. So the first question to ask is what kind of translation you're doing. Uh, there's literary translation, which is uh, translating fiction, essentially. And then there is a scholarly translation, something that you're doing for, for you know, for, for a, you know, university, for a library project, things like that. So that kind of translation is really different. In that kind of translation, the fealty is always to the text. You don't care how nice it is to read. You don't care how smooth it is. Your job is to correlate it almost word for word as clearly as possible and with lots and lots of footnotes. Now, footnotes are the tool of the devil. We do not use footnotes as much as possible in literary translation. Some, some people will argue with that, but that's my stance, and I will die on that hill. Um, now, with literary translation, uh, my job is to satisfy the reader before satisfying the writer, which means that I will betray the writer every once in a while and stab them in the back gently, very gently, uh, in order to make the story more readable for, uh, you know, for the intended audience. And there is a concept in translation for that. It comes from Italian. It's called traditore trattatore. What that means is to translate is to betray. That concept uh, originated when uh, the French translated Dante and the Italians felt that they've done so badly. Uh, so they came up with that because Dante's language is so rich, they felt the translation was a betrayal of his work. Now, we translators use that term to say, hey, we need to betray someone. Sometimes we betray the writer. In, in favor of the reader, and sometimes we're forced to betray the reader to to better translate what the writer had to say. There that also, is a fascinating concept to me. I'm sorry, Lottie, go ahead. Yeah, there are also um, different schools of translation, um, and there are a few that will say that you, 
it, it's fine for you to see the the writer or the original behind the curtains. And that is lately, I think nowadays is has fallen disuse. Nobody does that anymore. And the, and currently most translations, especially literary translations, will say that it, the, a translation is supposed to be a window. And as a translator, you want to make that window look like it's not there. So if you, you're polishing the glass to the last point so that people will look into the room and they will feel like there is no window. So most I, I think most translators would, would agree that you're um, more often than not betraying the author to make it more readable and more pleasant to the to the reader. I, maybe it's not a great thing to hear. <laughs> no, this is this is fascinating to me, especially because recently kind of the the news hit the internet of this hundred and twenty year old Icelandic translation of Bram Stoker's Dracula, which once somebody who knew the original took a good look at it, it turns out to be just essentially fan fiction of Dracula, wildly rewritten, uh, which I think is clearly an extreme case. But this idea that you would change things and betray the author in some sense, uh, I'm sure there's a very fine line. Can you give us any examples of, of when you have had to betray the author in the service of the reader? Certainly. And you don't actually have to go 120 years back to find uh, a good example of this. Uh, Ken Liu, who is, uh, few would argue, one of the greatest, if not the greatest translators working in genre today, um, was working on the three-body problem, uh, which won the Hugo, as you know, uh, and um, the style in which the body problem was written is very different from the way novels are written in English. So in the body problem, you didn't have dialogue the way that we think of dialogue. You didn't have just clearly marked, this person said this, this person said this. Instead, you had the narrator telling you, person A said this while he smoked a cigarette. Person B responded with this, and she did this. All of this is in a block of text. That block of text would be almost entirely unreadable to an average uh, Western reader who is used to novels the way that we know of novels for hundreds of years. And so Ken had a decision to make. He could either uh, be loyal to the author and, and translate the block of text as it was, which would make it really, really difficult for most of us to, to enjoy the actual uh, you know, plot of the book, the, the actual text. Or he could significantly rework those parts and turn them into actual dialogue. So the great advantage of working with living authors is that we can ask them. And so Ken was able to ask the author, uh, Xi Lu, whether or not uh, he could make those changes, and he got those approved. And so he made significant changes to that. Um, we all do these sort of things. I've had to uh, find concepts and find uh, pop popular culture references that are equivalents in English. Uh, to those that an original author would use. So if you're translating a story from English to another language and the story says that, you know, somebody was, was uh, you know, just ran into a wall uh, like, like in a Roadrunner cartoon, you're assuming that most of your readers have are familiar with Roadrunner. But the readers in, in China or in Nigeria or in Russia might not be familiar with Roadrunner. So you have to find an equivalent cartoon there to use uh, in, in, in this instance. And... Of course, you're not going to have a hundred percent correlation. There's going to be a, it's going to be a little bit different, and that's where the art of translation versus the technical scale of translation comes into play. I have a fun fact about this. Um, J.K. Rowling speaks Portuguese, 
because she lived in Portugal for a while. So she was involved in some of the translations of the Harry Potter, um, the, the different houses, how the school was called in, in Brazilian Portuguese. They, the translator actually checked with her for a few of the, the names. Oh, yeah. And I also, another interesting point is that how each culture is going to think about how far they can go from the original when they're doing their translation. So very often, I would say that French translation really goes much further from the original when translating to make it more um, sound more French. And it, it, it has a lot to do with how the country thinks about the readers and thinks about how the readers receive translation. So in Brazil, people are very used to reading translations. It's not a big deal. It's not quite the same in the U.S. So there is this sense that it needs to be adapted more so the readers will interact with it more. Well, let's go ahead and pause here for our uh, book of the week. Alex, I think you had something you wanted to share with us. Uh, sure. So in this case, it's actually a magazine, and I wanted to highlight Samovar. Samovar is uh, uh, affiliated with uh, Strange Horizons, but it's actually sort of its own thing. And they are one of only two magazines in our field that are exclusively focused on international fiction. Uh, Samovar publishes each story both in translation and in the original. So people who are able to compare the texts can do so. Um, I've had several uh, short stories appear there. And most recently, uh, there was a story called The Green Hills of Dmitry Totsky, which is a really weird story in a, sort of a, the Vandermeer style of weird, I would say, um, by a, a Russian a Kazakh author uh, named uh, Elder Safin. And it's his first uh, English language publication. And the story is so strange and so unusual that it was just a pleasure to, um, to get to translate it. Uh, and so I wanted to to highlight that and highlight his work since uh, since it's his first uh, uh, first appearance, which is which is what we translators love to do. We love to, to bring material that you would not otherwise have access to. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, one of the things that uh, occurred to me as you were both speaking was that uh, one of the the biggest problems with your when you're doing translation is uh, is wordplay which often winds up affecting um, the titles because a lot of things I think you can get around with by providing additional context. Um, but titles wind up being really, really tricky. Like I have um, my Shades of Milk and Honey in the Japanese is I think Mrs. El Miss Ellsworth's Magical Neighbor um, because the biblical reference of milk and land of milk and honey is meaningless. Um, calculating stars doesn't actually translate well because it's there's a, a there's a joke there, so it's or not a joke, but there's some there's some wordplay with the different ways that you can use calculating. Um, so, what do you uh, is that a piece that the translator thinks about, or is it much like books here that it is often the uh, sales and marketing department that thinks about what the new title should be? Oh, it has to be the translator because the translator understands what the load, what the cultural load and the meaning of the pun is in the original language. Uh, the marketing department will not have the same benefit, most likely. So I actually have a perfect example for this. Um, the, one of my favorite stories that I've translated, which also was published in Samovar, as a matter of fact, uh, was a story by uh, Katerina Bacilla writing as K.A. Tirina. 
And the name of the story in Russian is Biasnazvanya. Now, Biasnazvanya, if you change one letter, could mean one of two things. It could either mean untitled or it could mean the demon of the name. So Bias Bias is a demon and Bias is without. So... I had to come up, and, and this is relevant. I couldn't just randomly change the name of the story without referencing it because this is actually referenced in the text itself. So I had to find something that was even remotely um, workable uh, with the plot of the story. So the name of the story in English ended up being Untilted. And yeah, Untilted playing off of Untitled. Right. And it's an intentional misspelling that's mentioned in the story and, and is justified within the story itself. Wow. I will mention, though, that it, it, it varies. If you're dealing with a very commercial publishing house, it is possible that marketing will just change the title. And that has happened to me a couple of times. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's talk about this from the author's side as well. And I suspect I know the answer to this one up front. But uh, when someone is writing a book, knowing that it will be or hoping that it will be translated, is there anything they can or should do to make that process easier? I would think not. Uh, I think when you're creating a, a work, whether it's a, a novel, a short story, a screenplay, any any creative endeavor, you're creating it for the medium for which in which you're working. So if you stop yourself and start thinking, well, how is this going to work in my audiobook? How is this going to work in translation? How is this going to work if somebody tries to adopt this to screen? you are literally limiting yourself instead of being as creative and telling as interesting a story as you can. So no, I don't think you should. I think your job is to tell the best possible story in the medium and then let the professionals figure out how to, uh, how to convert that to, to podcast, to, uh, to translation, to any other, any other medium, that, uh, if it is indeed possible. And that is what I expected you to say. So hooray, I was right. Yay. Um, uh, I, I'm going to, I'm going to, fight against that though. Okay, cool. Um, because since I do audiobooks, I, I actually do think about it when I write um, with audiobooks, but I, I've also talked to uh, to other translators and they've said that, that there are some things that you can think about um, that when you're, uh, when it's time to, to have your work translated, uh, that can make it easier. For instance, if you know that you've done wordplay in something, um, if you if you make a note of it so that when the translation, when they're like, this book is going to translation, that you can have a note uh, ready for the translator about this is the wordplay, because um, one of the things that I've, like not all translators are equal and some of them will not actually catch the wordplay that that you have put in, or the the deep cultural significance of a thing, so that that there are some things you can do that don't involve um, erasing your creativity. Absolutely. Read. Um, I have like a thousand translator stories that I would love to tell, but we don't have time. Uh, we we in fact are out of time. But I want to ask two more very quick questions. Uh, if someone out there is writing a book. And they are hoping to have it, you know, translated into other languages so more people can read it. How do you go about selling foreign rights, selling your book into foreign markets? And then how do you get that work translated? 
And, and, and I think you can answer this from a novel or short fiction. Yes. So it's actually two completely different answers, though. Um, for novels, your agent and your publisher will work to sell the rights, and your involvement in this may actually be minimal. Uh, you will work with a translator, of course, if you're able to, and you'll answer questions, but you aren't necessarily going to do a lot to influence. The best way to sell your novel in translation is just to do really well with your novel in English or whatever original language that it came out in. Uh, but for short fiction, it's a completely different landscape because there's very little money involved. And so agents and, and you know all these professionals generally will not be involved. Uh, what ends up happening with the vast majority of short stories that are translated is you have translators who are volunteers who, who are fans themselves, like myself, find the story, read it, fall in love with the story, and then reach out to the author and ask their permission to translate the story. Once I translate the story, I then shop it around to short fiction markets in the same way as I would my own short story. I send the submissions with a cover letter and all that, and you prearrange with the author. Typically, the deal is if you sell a story to somewhere like fantasy and science fiction or whatever – you split the money 50-50. There's no money up front. Nobody's paying you because typically for professional translation, the rates are about 10 to 15 cents per word. So that's already more than most markets will pay you know, for, for the translation. So the, the money is not there. And as such, it has to be a labor of love for, for the translator. And they have to be willing to uh, do this on spec uh, overwhelming majority of the time. Lottie, did you have something that you wanted to say about that too? Yeah, um, just on the editor and agent side, since I, I have that, that side of the experience, I would just kind of to give an overview to everyone on how that works. Um, we, once we have a manuscript, we'll decide at which point we're sending out the manuscript for international publishers. So we might do that at the first point when it's being sold and here into the U.S. publishing houses, or we might do that when it's already closer to publication, depending on what shape the manuscript's in. And then that's going to be sent to publishing houses around the world who publish that kind of book. And I think, I think the thing to keep in mind here is that the person who's deciding if they're publishing that or not is also an editor in a different country. I don't know if that is obvious for everyone. So we're talking to editors again, it's a whole new submission process. Um, and what's interesting is that often there are things that people think will not work internationally. And then the book becomes really big in the US and suddenly it works. So even the idea that um, there's something that you can do or shouldn't do to not make it harder or to make it easier for the translator to translate really it, it depends on an editor in a different country connecting to the story and seeing value in making that translation. Well, that's a great note to uh, to wrap up on. So um, let's leave our listeners with a little bit of a homework. Alex, do you have something to help them with? Sure. So the prompt that I came up with is linguistic misunderstanding. I would love for all of you to write a story where the characters are in trouble in some way because of a cultural or a linguistic uh, misunderstanding, something, is, something has gone wrong in translation, and uh, really build that into the story. Don't just have that be uh, you know, an inciting incident and then completely walk away from that. That's a great suggestion. All right. You are out of excuses. Now go write. Does anyone want to say that again in another language? 
Yes. Yes, please do that. У вас больше нет никаких причин не работать. Идите, пишите. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production. Jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storytellers' stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like... Do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. 